Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, is Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to be talking about contextual-based training and how you would train and how you would treat a, let's say, recreational jiu-jitsu athlete or just uh, somebody doing a combat sport for fun as opposed to a professional athlete and, and what the differences are as well as what some of the similarities are too. So Alex, start it up. Well, first off, I don't know why I do this every time when you give the introduction and say my name. I give a little peace sign or I wave to the camera. And I don't know why I do that. We don't put the video up. So that's just... Um, I like when you do it because it makes me more comfortable. It reckon, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it's acknowledgement, right? That you're, exactly. you are introducing me correctly as badass strength coach because <laughs> that's who I am uh, for anybody yeah. that knows me. Exactly. Beautiful. But yeah, we're, we're talking about how to make programs and make your training a little more context specific, whether um, you're dealing with different um, athletes that play different sports or just general population that want to train for health and wellness or general population that want to get better at their jujitsu game um, or what have you, just making a program the most utilizable per person um, based on their goals and based on um, what context and what situation they find themselves. And yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with talking about goals because at the end of the day, training, treating, uh, healthcare, whatever, dietetics, whatever you're talking about, it goes down to what are the goals of the person in front of you, right? Most of the time, I'd say 90% of the time, unless you're working with elite athletes, the goal is for longevity and to be able to do that activity for as long as possible. Think about like a golfer, the, a big thing with, with in my profession and chiropractic and, and healthcare is working with golfers. And most of the time you want to make them be able to play golf into their nineties because that's what they love to do. All right. The same thing can be said for jujitsu. Same can be said for Muay Thai, all of these different combat sports that you love to do. It's your, it's your release. It's your, I guess, like um, it's your home away from home. And you want to be able to be with your supplement family and train as much as you can. And that's how a lot of people feel. Yeah. And I'm just generally curious, Austin, what, what has your, been your experience with having clients, you know, either write down goals or recording the goals um, in that sense versus just kind of a, an understood goal or a conversation that you have with the client? Do you typically write them down and have them, you know, pen and paper, or do you have a good conversation and have a mutual understanding? I've done both through the beginning of my career. Um, the one that I think, the one that I think makes it the least awkward uh, because like sitting somebody down and looking them in the eyes, like, what are your goals? Like that, <laughs> like somebody, when you walk into a healthcare or into strength conditioning, that's normally not what they want, right? They're like, I'm here to train. Yeah. So the thing that I've been doing recently is just, it's almost like an implied goal. And then as I start working in the first visit or in the first session, and then as we start working together, then I start using the word goal or I use the word, what, what are we trying to get to and try to figure out what their actual like explicit goal is without having to sit them down and be like, look, we're going to write smart goals today and we're going to have actionable steps. And this is what we're doing because I'm, I'm not a very, I guess, straightforward, per, straightforward person. I'm, I'm not very detail oriented, if you will. I'm a little bit more organized chaos. <laughs> and and most people that come to me, I feel it's one of those things like personalities attract personalities. Most people that gel well with me also are organized chaos. So I know if somebody sat me down, I I would just laugh at them if they told me to write a smart goal. I'd tell them to go fuck themselves. I'm like, why am I why am I paying for this? 
I can do this on my own. So I, I try to draw it out of them within the next three, maybe four visits. And then from there, we make actionable steps, whether it's from the treatment side or the training side to get them to where they need to be. What do Uh, you do? (laughs) I think that's beautiful. I think, um, yeah, like you said, I've tried both and I've gone through with teams and we've written down goals and things. And I think some of those conversations can be beneficial, but not because we write goals down, but because we have a conversation where we're both seeking to understand, you know, the athlete or the person learns a little bit about what they actually think. And I learn as a coach, Um, but currently no, I go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's extremely important in a team-based format. So as far as like, like I know something that works really well, I know our wrestling team did it in college um, as well as our, some of our coaching staffs in the area do it is you sit down with your, your team and you write out what are your personal goals and team goals. But as far as, as, and that's how you get everybody on the same page. That's about unity. That's a little different than about specific ambitions. Um, But no, with with individuals, what what I've gravitated towards is exactly what you're saying. You have a conversation, you create a mutual understanding, and then I'm, I'm very subtle in approaching it as a goal or very subtle in putting it forward. And then, you know, like you said, maybe a weekend or maybe 34 session, you can say, so what I'm getting is this is your goal. You want to be able to perform this in however long. And like, and that just becomes um, the next gradual progression, right? It's not, it's not as formal as sitting down when you really don't have a clue if this person doesn't know their goals or if this person, if I ask you what your goals are and, and you're, kind of awestruck um it's not really beneficial to make something up on the spot that's a lot less genuine i feel than actually conversing and actually um getting some ground level of relationship building before you launch into somebody's whole mission while they're there or somebody's whole um life story dude 100 percent. i think the relationship coming before the goal setting is is so crucial yeah. because you if if you know that person inevitably you're going to end up knowing their goals because you just connect you like you're connecting to them on just an actual like human level. Right. If once you become friend, like it, I I'm very, very strong, strongly inclined to say everybody I work with, granted I have a specific population, but everybody I work with, I'm not just their Cairo. I'm not just their strength coach, not just their wrestling coach, all these other things. I'm also friends with every single person. And I think that's extremely important because I get, I get along with them very well. And that's what allows me to know what their goals are without even having to say it because I know where their head's at at all points in time when they walk into my office. No, and I think that's a hugely powerful tool, but I think the other thing that you have working for you is we're both relatively young right now, right? We can connect on, on, on that level. Whereas, you know, if, Later on, you can take more of a mentorship approach where it's still a, a significant relationship and a give and take, but it's not as, as much friendship, right? It's more mentorship or, or something else down the line. But then I also want to think about moving beyond goals, right? Beyond the goals. Once we've set the goals or we have an understanding of the goals, how then can we pivot in our programming or in our approach to training, to rehab, to anything, to make it more context-based or more individualized to the person. I mean, for, for me looking at, depending on what the goal, what their goals are, mm-hmm. um, if I'm working with a, somebody that's not an elite athlete, not a professional athlete, almost all the time, their goal, like I said, is to do what they want to do for as long as possible. So what we would call longevity 
or longevity of career. Uh, if I'm working with a professional athlete, we got to know right off the bat that their goals aren't always healthy. Their goal to be the number one fighter in the world, high, like it, it's not a healthy habit to do. They're going to burn their bodies into the ground no matter what they do. And you need to know that right off the bat and you need to train and plan their programming accordingly. Because while you can make it as, as I guess, as little detriment as possible to them, they are going to push themselves. In order to be the best in the world, you have to do some stuff that probably sacrifice, sacrifices your longevity. Just look at any NFL player ever. Right. And I think there, there's a little bit of crossover between both of those two. You know, that person that is training for health and wellness uh, on the back end of it, maybe once upon a time they get a, a performance goal that maybe they, they catch on to, you know, the barbell and they want to learn a, a clean and jerk. And then we, we t- take some time chasing the clean and jerk, even though it's maybe not the most healthy thing for the shoulder in the long run or, or whatever. And it could be argued that's healthier for the shoulder, but um, <laughs> yeah, but maybe we spend some time sacrificing longevity for the performance in that case, but also with our high performance athlete, we need to take into account the longevity because that's going to affect their career and that's going to affect um how they feel day to day and their, their pain scales. So I think there is, it's not mutually exclusive, but, and there is a little bit of a crossover uh, between the longevity and uh, the high performance or the sacrifice, if you will. A hundred percent. It's, it's just on a continuum is all it is. It's on one side is people sit on that are sitting on the couch and eating Cheetos all day and drinking beer. On the other end is Michael Phelps, Henry Cejudo, uh, Izzy, all these other people. And then right in the middle is longevity. Yeah. M- moving from the middle to the right on that continuum is going to be most everybody that are going to be coming through a high performance or performance care area. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think something that comes into my mind immediately when we think about either beginning to train somebody or having a timeline is the pacing of all of this, because, you know, with the gen pop person, we don't need to jump straight into the high performance type of stuff, even if they're ready for it, even if they've done this stuff before, we can take time to slow quick the process and hit all our right progressions. And, and that's still going to benefit them immensely. But it's also a longer term approach that will um, provide a better foundation and uh, create, again, a, a longer training window, right? It allows us to I always think about like, if, if I am working with a gen pop person or a recreational athlete, uh, I, I think about building a pyramid, right? If I don't build a pyramid from the big block at the bottom, then I'm going to do them a detriment moving forward. Whereas sometimes you don't have that much time with professional athletes. They're in camp, right? You got eight weeks to make them as best as they can. And so maybe they never see work with you ever again. So you're just going to try to capitalize and make that top of the pyramid as wide as possible, if you will. And that, that's kind of how I see some, some of the continuums. Uh, I think that's funny too, because it that's a that's a quote from Louis Simmons is that a pyramid is only as tall as it is wide, right? And, and Louis Simmons and Westside is kind of the antithesis of longevity and um, oh, health. that's what that's what they're known for. <laughs> Powerlifting, right? Um, <laughs> no, it, it was funny too, because personally. Um, just going on a tangent about powerlifting throughout my wrestling career, uh, you know, you have various injuries and whatever, and you, you work through them. Uh, the minute that I kind of mainstreamed or mainlined for the most weight on the bar, the powerlifting type of goals, starting moving like a powerlifter, trying to uh, create as much strength as I could and really move high loads. That was the time when everything seemed to start going wrong in my body, right? Everything was locking up was super tight, uncomfortable all the time, you know, and it's an interesting trade-off 
that we go through. And, and I think it's worthwhile that practitioners go through it themselves too. But, um, but yeah, as soon as I started chasing numbers and then, and I think there's, you know, a warrior spirit or, or whatever type of mindset you have going into those type of events. But when I started chasing that, that's when health seemed to go out the window or, or kind of down the most. Yeah. And another thing just to pivot a little bit is you, you also need to know if you are working with that athlete, something, something else, another variable that plays in is the age of that athlete and where in their career are they? Because say I'm working with a UFC athlete that's 39 versus somebody that's 29. I'm probably going to approach their training a little bit differently, right? The 39-year-old has probably got maybe two, three fights left, and they're moving towards being a dad, being a normal member of society, being a coach, as opposed to that 29-year-old is just about to hit the peak of their athletic prime in, in mixed martial arts. So you got to look at their training load a little bit differently and what are you going to do to best benefit them? And at the end of the day, like we've been talking about, like we've been preaching, that's what matters. What's going to best benefit them, even if they don't know it yet. Cause sometimes those 39 year olds <laughs> think that they can move like a 29 year old and they just don't know it yet. Right. No. And I think, and, and then you, you want to avoid that hard wake up call, right? You want to, you want to be able to have a conversation and be able to mitigate that before they start banging weights around and, uh, and then we figure it out. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say is speaking of, you know, age and speaking of time, I, uh, had a good experience at the UFC PI and, and we were working with Punale Soriano, who is an up and coming, um, middle eight and dude's a dude, beast. Dude throws bombs. Yes. Um, but you know, he is an athletic monster. You know, he's only 27 years old, a couple of years, um, older than I, and we got along really well. But that dude, anything we did in the weight room, you know, he could handle it. He could throw weight on a bar. He could do anything. And it was benefiting him. But the point is that he was so young and he had such a high adaptability that bar almost anything that we did was going to get a response from him. And almost anything that we did was going to be beneficial for him. He had a lot more robustness to his training because of his age and athleticism and place that he was at in his career versus, you know, an approach when we're training somebody that's more later in their career and a veteran that has set stuff that they've done before or, or has limitations via their body, via their previous injuries, we need to start to account for that stuff. So um, as you go along in your career, the, the options kind of narrow, if you will. Well, and that's where I start to use just talking about modalities or different instruments in the weight room. That's where I start to probably back off from as much barbell training and move more towards our kettlebell, move more towards our uh, unilateral loading patterns and stuff like that yeah. as they start to age. And yeah. may maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but that's my personal preference. And that's what, I, that's what I've seen work in, in my eyes as well as the research that I've read is trying to decrease the overall load and increase the movement variability. Uh, and I 100% agree. And I think if anything, I think the industry we need to, um, and I hate saying this, it hurts me to the core, but we need to start <laughs> getting away from the barbell earlier, earlier on and earlier. Because I, while I do think there is a lot of developmental strength and a lot of value to the barbell and to heavy lifting and um, some Olympic lift variations. I don't think that is the end all be all. And I don't think that you're not training if you don't use a barbell. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in um, the kind of phrase that, that's been thrown around is the, what am I trying to say? Minimal, minimal effective dose, right? Yes. That oh, minimal yeah. Yeah, effective dose is, is magic, right? That's the goal of the access, not too much to where we're causing fatigue and overtraining, but not too little that we're not doing anything. 
we want to find that where we're doing the least a bit of damage with the most um, benefit. Yeah. And a lot of the times that comes from that unilateral loading that comes from trying to focus on our, our single leg or our single arm or, or our dumbbell work and stuff like that. But I will throw a counterpoint out there that, and I know it's weird coming from me because you're the barbell guy and I'm not, <laughs> there has to be a time and a place for absolute strength work. Yeah. There has to be. And there has to be a time and a place for barbell training, even if it's not extremely important in the actual training program itself. That's the base of power. That's you got to get strength before you get power. And I think, I think or combat athletes need to know that because a lot of them, they, they don't want to touch a barbell when in reality, it doesn't have to be the main part of what they do, but it, it should be in there at some point. Yeah. And, and you do need to approach that absolute strength at some time within your program or within your developmental approach. And I think training absolute strength, you don't have to use a barbell, but it's by far and away the best implement. You know, it's the easiest way to load something up and you can get there with a trap bar and you can maybe lift four or five dumb or kettlebells at a time. Um, Just kidding, (laughs) by the way. Um, But yeah. You just loop your arms through and do it like a zercher. That's that. That's some stuff you would see on like gym fails or fail army, and people just falling over. But it's a, that would be on the strength coaches with a whiteboard page. Yeah, it would just right. be holding it and say, "Don't do this." Yeah, right. I think that's funny. But approaching the absolute loading is by far and away easiest done with the the barbell. But the barbell doesn't account for every quality and every factor that we need to train in the weight room. Um, different modalities that I love for MMA. And I think that have been widespread, you know, kettlebell training, med ball training, landmine has been catching fire recently, but I I think all of those things help with the movement quality as well as some additional external load. Bro, I just got an inertia wave. It's great. I love it. It's, it's, I know, I know, you know, yeah, you were asking me about it, what the value of that versus battle ropes were. I know. And then just looking into it and using it. It's one of those tools that I, it's, it's the, the reason why I'm bringing it up is the inertia wave versus the battling ropes. And being able to do that is my fighters are able to stay in such a better biomechanical position when they do that. And it's going to be so much easier for if the day comes that I do get a gen pop person to come through my doors. Um, it'll be so much easier for them to use as well because it's not as heavy. And they can keep their body where they need, but still get that, I guess, that burn, if you will, or get, get that work in. Yeah, And for me, it's been a lot more of like an isometric stress and isometric strain, which yes. again is a benefit over the battle ropes that pull you out of a, uh, out of a good position. And um, you're doing a lot more concentric work, which again, time and place for that, right? There's time and place where, you know, maybe more advanced athlete needs to use the battle ropes to resist that positional change and to, learn to hold their own position but uh, i think both are valuable yeah and so i think me personally i think there's two qualities that whether you're training a a recreational combat athlete or professional combat athlete you can never go wrong training the first one is going to be your cardiorespiratory system or just cardiac output that in general whether you're working with a high performing athlete or just a lawyer that likes to roll jujitsu increasing your respiration increasing your cardiovascular system both of those systems combined you cannot go wrong that's going to make them a healthier person and increase their longevity the other thing that i think is extremely important is going to be your muscular endurance because that's one of the things that will go as you age so the more muscular endurance that you can build up 
the longer they will then be able to do that activity that they love so much. And talking about it with high-performing athletes, every single one of them needs muscular endurance because they are fighting for, 50, no matter what, fighting for at least 15 minutes unless they're Francis Ngannou. So the lower, like the, the lower the weight class, the more muscular endurance is needed and muscular efficiency, which is separate, but similar. And yep. Oh, no, I was just going to say that muscular endurance and, and we just touched on it. One of the best ways to train muscular endurance is through isometric holds and isometric positional training. Um, Hell yeah, dude. I, it's, I've been, you know what I've been using recently actually is Copenhagen's. Beautiful. I, I know we talked about it last week on the, the knee podcast, but I've been using those so much and just isometrically loading the hips on the inside. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just helped so much with the grappling aspects with being able to either get a body triangle or throw those mm-hmm. legs in. Yeah. I, I love trying to tinker around too and find different positions that we can do actions out of, but require a high isometric strain because that's what wrestling and grappling is, right? You know, even when you're attacking a sub, maybe you still have to have the isometric squeeze squeeze with your hooks in or still have to have an isometric uh, contraction in your guard while you're playing other things with your hands or trying to get up to the side. Um, So like doing stuff like side plank with a row involved or doing a low bear crawl while we do a kettlebell pull through or different things like that, training that co-contraction and just the overall body um, tightness and isometric stress while we can accomplish other goals is just, you know, it doubles down. Um, Not that that needs to be every exercise, right? But that uh, it's a good area to hit specifically with some grappling population and it's low impact. It's not going to stress the body and going to, you know, hurt performance in the, in the short term or the long term. Uh, Isometric strength is one of the highest bang for your buck as far as least stress into the system, there's no impact on the ground. There's less eccentric movement because we're training in a, a held position. Um, but there's so much strength to be gained out of isometric position holds. Dude, I've been using the pendulum arm of the reverse hyper recently for isometrics. And I just throw a band around it, and whether they hold a row, hold a press, yeah. hold that end range of a punch. And then I just swing the pendulum arm with like 45s on each side and make mm-hmm. them hold that position. That's been working real. Like, I love that. Doing yeah. that with like a wood chopper, bro, lights up the trunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dynamic and, and some perturbation. Um, I started incorporating that and I, I'm... Um, I'm a big fan, and I, I see this a lot on the USA National Football Training. I forget I forget the guy's name, but he's on the Instagram. But uh, he critiques the payoff press quite a bit. And like as much as the payoff press is great for anti-rotation and, and the stabilization that we talk about, a payoff press doing that in the weight room does not prepare you to uh, resist change in a grappling match. You know, I, I used to think about uh, doing the payoff press and holding that position, right, which – relatively easy depending on what yep. band and, and resistance you're using and then i always think back to a drill that we did in our wrestling practice where we got into a referee's position hands and knees and you ha- and your goal is exclusively to hold this base hold this referee's position yeah. and the guy <laughs> on top gets to do anything and everything to try and break you off of that base and, and again the payoff press doesn't hold a candle to that as far no. as resisting movement so it's interesting the levels that there are to that because we want to spend time at that low level of payoff press and develop a a pattern and develop strength into that positional stability but that's not where we spend all our time 
right? That, no. that there has to be progressions up and away from that, which is what I was kind of hitting on earlier with the pacing. Like we can start at gr- like ground zero with two knees on the ground, a really light resistance band pressing out and holding for a payoff press, trying not to use our shoulders and not to rotate. But if I'm doing that on, you know, month six that I've been training somebody, then that's on me doing something wrong, right? That's not an adequate progression. Right. And, and, I love payoffs, but I would say 90% of the time I see somebody do them, it's wrong anyways. So <laughs> like they're always up in their shoulders, they're shrugging and it's, it's like they have like T-Rex arms when they're out. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's not a payoff press, bro. Like do something else. <laughs> it's a, it's a fly isometric hold, a peck fly yeah. isometric. Dude, for sure. Uh, and talking about, so get, getting back to working with like let's say recreational athletes something that you can look to do if you are a coach um, and trying to work with recreational we'll say jujitsu for what it's worth um, something that i see work a lot is you just add instead of doing like straight up sets and reps have them do it for time focused on form right so you have and that'll help as long as there's consistent stimulus so as long as there's consistent stimulus and if they have a heart rate monitor it's 80 bucks, get a polar heart rate that helps everybody involved. But as long as they have a heart rate monitor, you can check to make sure you're going to get the cardiovascular benefit. If you have them on a clock with consistent work, instead of just having them do sets and reps and focus on just one variable at a time. And it could good be, it'd be a good way to help them at just stay interested in what you're doing too. Like that's what I, I'm not a big CrossFit guy. I never have been, never will be, but that's the one thing that everybody loves about CrossFit is that you stay interested. <laughs> yeah, right. It's challengingly variable all the time, but I'm a huge fan of that um, in the weight room or on the mats or whatever you can do to break away from the sets and reps monologue that we see all the time. You know, even as a practitioner, I'm so sick of hearing how many reps is this or we're doing this corrective movement, do eight reps. You know, like the rep count in some of those contexts does not matter. You know, it's the quality of the reps and it's how well, how much we can improve on that. And when we get to heavily loaded things or progressions that we're set on, reps do start to make a difference. But if I, if we're warming up and I'm trying to have an athlete or somebody do a cat cow and mobilize their spine, it literally makes no difference if they do eight, nine, 10, 12 reps, you know, and I, I, I kind of uh, am a smart ass back to my athletes, you know, how many reps is this till it feels good, man. Just keep going. And until uh, I, I always say till you're tired. So <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it right anymore. And I've actually started programming that a lot in my progressions because, um, and anybody that works with high schoolers knows that push up is an epidemic, right? Anybody Bro. doing it, any high schooler athlete doing a push up is an epidemic, dude. Nobody just does them. They're just drilling for oil the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> so I, put them in a correct position. I teach them the right progression. And then we do push-ups on my cadence until posture starts to fail. Once your posture starts to fail, you're done, right? It's not three sets of 10. It's not do 50 push-ups. It's let me watch you until your form breaks down. And eventually you need to learn when that form breaks down and you need to um, be able to self-monitor and regulate that. Cause uh, we have a thing and sorry, I'm going on for a long time here, but I call it garbage reps, right? You know, maybe the program, maybe the sheet says three sets of six and you're on your third set and your second rep, your posture starts to break down and your form fails. But, you know, coach, the sheet says six, I have to do six and I don't want to let my ego go. I need to do this weight. I got to keep going. Even if they're bad reps, I'll push through. 
you know, and like it, I call them garbage reps for a reason. You're literally doing garbage, right? It's not worth compromising your technique, learning the poor form and going to that anytime you fatigue. We need to start to more auto-regulate or, or in my context, give the athlete more power into understanding why or why not to do a rep. Well, and that comes down to something we've talked about before is functional capacity, right? Like if you do, if you have, let's say six by six and your third set, your second rep is dog shit. And from there on out, it's dog shit. You're furthering your functional capacity from your absolute capacity. Cause you're just doing shit rep after shit rep for the last, I don't know. I think that's 18. If I, I don't know if I counted correctly, but for 18 reps in a row, you suck. Yeah. Like you suck. And that's like for athletics, especially unless you're in a powerlifting, Olympic lifting sport, most of the time your functional capacity means a lot more than your absolute capacity. I would say nine times out of 10, it does. So why, why are we focusing on absolute capacity in the weight room when it should be, how can we do the best rep possible the most amount of times to, I sound like a broken record and here adhere to our said principle because the adaptations that you get from lifting should be based around the demands that you ask on your body. If you ask your body to do garbage reps, guess what? You're going to adapt like a garbage repper. Right. hundred percent. Beautifully, uh, beautifully stated. But, and I think that's another contextual difference that we can highlight too. Uh, the gem pop jujitsu person, I, I generally haven't had a problem with saying, all right, that barbell RDL, we need to, or we need to step away from that because you're, you're losing your form and your posture. Let's go to this kettlebell RDL. Let's regress this a little bit so we can still finish out the reps. It's no big deal. But with the competitive athlete that has been ingrained in their mind, I need to work harder. I need to do more. I need to be, you know, in it and grinding. That athlete has a really hard time stepping away from that, that challenge, right? Which is something we like to see, but it's something that we need to moderate too. I, I don't disagree with you, but that comes down to your athlete trusting you and knowing what, like, like, yes, I agree with you. Like if I go up to a random MMA athlete and I'm like, look, I need you to stop doing like your form sucks. We can't keep doing this. You're going to hurt yourself. Yeah, they might, they might not listen to you. But if you've been working with this person for, say, a month, and they don't trust you to the point that if I say that to you, they, look at, they, they say no, then that's on you for not making that bond with that person, for them to know that you are putting their best foot forward. Yeah, I, I think that's... The day, like, they need to know that, you're, that you always have their best interest at heart. Yep. And that's, that's super important. Right, and you're, you're working for what's going to be more beneficial in the long run, not what makes you tired today or what burns you out, right? Um, and again... I, dude, I, lo- I, love, dude, I love saying to people, it's something that I say, I probably say it once a week just because people get pissed at either how hard or how little I push them, depending Mm -hmm. upon who the person is. I'm like, look, I get absolutely fucking nothing for making you worse. (laughs) Why would I make you worse? (laughs) Like I get a lot for making you better because the more you make, the more you get to pay me. Right. And, <laughs> and like, go and for it. No, I think that goes well because one of my common things I say is like, you can work harder and be more tired today, or we can change and you'll be worse today, but you're going to be better in, in two months. Right. I think that's a huge trade off. And especially with the population that I'm working with is, is not a thought in the world. Right. No high schooler yeah. again is thinking two or three months from now, how good am I going to be at the bench press? Right. They're thinking about, I need to put up right now, you know, bro, bro they're thinking friends. about they're looking and thinking about high school girls. Like let's be real here. They're not right. thinking about bench press. Yep. 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 <laughs> so, but again, context specific, 
population specific it, it all comes down to you know more of a relational approach and more of a, a contextual understanding and seeing how that plays out whether you're training somebody in person online or or this or that having those contexts set out and understanding that difference that needs to occur i think is part of the job of coaching right you can't do one without the other all right i got a bone to pick with some strength coaches too this just right. popped into my head and it's been something I've been thinking about recently. Do I fall into this category? Are you attacking me as well? Oh, I'm staring right into your soul <laughs> right now. Good. Why in the hell do we need non-power lifters and non-Olympic lifters to deadlift with a barbell from the ground? Why? Why do we need to do that? Why can't we elevate them by like, say, six inches off the ground on a platform? So is your bone that they're pulling from the ground or is your bone that they're not My elevated? bone is... The, my bone is that they're pulling from the ground and literally, unless you're an elite athlete, you don't have the spinal control to get into a good hinge and get all the way to the ground unless you have gorilla arms. You, you don't. <laughs> like I've done, a, I've done a lot of research on biomechanics. That's, that's basically what a chiropractic, a doctor in chiropractic is. It's just biomechanics. And like, that's, that's not, that's not something that I would say 85% of the population can do. So I repeat, it's dumb. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, I can think of a few contextual reasons that, that I program it. And, and right now, I think for better or worse, we always clean off of crash pads, which are about a six-inch lift. So yep. I think that helps. But one, uh, having the experience I did at CU um, with their program, which is a great program, and they do pretty exclusive Olympic lifting and uh, squatting in their program. I want to prepare my high schoolers to tolerate that load so they're not smacked in the mouth, right? I want to at least teach them a basic clean, right? And that starts with a deadlift from the front, from the ground. So getting them set on that progression and, and I think teaching them some and giving them a solid foundation is doing more good than ignoring it, even if I think it's more optimal to be doing something else. Um, so, so you're perpetuating bullshit to get them ready for bullshit. <laughs> is what, that's basically what I just heard. Is that, well, you know, they're going to run into bullshit. So you need to get them at least a little bit prepared for bullshit. And I, I agree that that's a sad state of affairs that, that, you know, my number one job is preparing them for what their collegiate strength coach is going to throw at them. Like, I, I think that's a poor, a very poor position to be in. And, and it's, it's sad, but it's a reality, you know, it's a reality right now. And until I get to a position where I'm pushing the envelope or where I'm changing the game myself, that's what it's going to be. Um, so I think giving them some tools to go into the fight with is better than saying we did all this stuff. Good luck. I, okay. You're right. I don't, okay. I don't disagree because they are going to run into it and I've seen okay. that, but I feel like you're putting a bandaid on a broken system. How do you want me to change the system? Like I, I understand your whole, your whole be approach. The, be the change, Alex, be the change. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's what you can hit me with. Really? Yes. Um, yes. So until such a time that I am the overall authority and in a place to heavily influence the uh, strength and conditioning world, I, I will continue to prepare my athletes for what they're going to see later on. And as much as I'd love to change it, it's, it's not a reality. You know, it's not a reality right now. So. And if you, if you ran the world. Yeah. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a great thing? Um, <laughs> why else would we pull a deadlift from the ground? Um, I mean, all right. So the only thing I could think of is increase what you said. That was one of the things I've, I've thought of. And then increasing glute activation because you, you force a hinge, whether you're in a lumbar, whether you're in lumbar flexion or not, you force yourself to maximally hinge. I like so those are the only oh, two ahead. things I see. 
I was going to say that's, that's the only two things I see because like, yeah. even if like you talk about the longevity approach, bro, nothing is going to be four inches off the ground. And even if it is, I'm going to have them not just hinge. I'm going to have them bend their knees too. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a, that's another, I think a debate for another day is the lifting technique and, and how and where you get into that position. But, um, I like one of the reasons that I would select a, a deadlift from the ground is it increases range of motion specifically, right? And maybe we don't need to load the bar up sky high and make it a one RM effort, but I think the range of motion and even some spinal flexion based in your training is going to be beneficial in itself. You know, we think of athletes, you know, Greco Roman wrestlers, um, freestyle wrestlers, when you're lifting a person off, they are zero inches off the ground. They're not four inches off the ground. They are zero. So, and we can use different modalities like heavy med balls. I love to do med ball shoulder throws with that. I think those are, are great modalities, but it still prepares you a little bit larger range of motion and we can get a little bit more load on the bar in that context, all within, you know, your safe parameters or whatever you would think it's safe. so 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 what i just heard was that you don't like barbell deadlifts you like heavy med ball deadlifts <laughs> yeah so i, well, st- <laughs> so I stand by the an, fact that i'll point out another practicality issue austin i've been one place in my whole strength and conditioning world uh, career that's had heavy med balls the ufcpi they had 80 100 and 120 pound med balls anywhere else nobody has med balls over 10 pounds that's another epidemic that should be fixed. Yeah, that you want me to fix right away in, in my in yeah. my capacity. I'll change the whole. You're the director show. of performance now. <laughs> so obviously, I have widespread influence. Exactly. That's what this podcast is for. <laughs> well, we're getting the word out there, Austin. I can't be, <laughs> and I'll play the the victim of circumstance, and you can be the the uh, the pariah that just sits above everyone and critiques. Perfect. That's what I'm good at. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um, glad that you were referencing your your glute ham and reverse hyper that you use all the time because I have zero at my gym. So I don't have a glute ham. I got rid of that. I actually traded that for a reverse hyper. What was the reasoning behind that? Uh, because we were using the glute ham. Basically, we I'd like a 45 degree glute ham if I was going to have one, not a straight up glute ham, um, just based off anglage. So if we got we had an offer that we don't we didn't use ours and they didn't use their reverse hyper. And I'm like, well, I like reverse hypers because they're not just for the back. I can also use the pendulum arm for literally everything we just talked about earlier. So I made that trade real quick. Yeah, it's a suitor. pseudo jammer, jammer arm, even though you have those as well and I don't. So we, well, can, we to, can go tip for that on all this, Austin. To be fair, uh, I would say a reverse hyper probably fits into a clinic mold a lot more than a glute ham does like a straight up glute ham does just for the applications of the lumbar decompression it's basically like without going into the weeds too far there's a there's a technique in in both physical therapy and chiropractic where it's called flexion distraction so basically you ha- you're on the table if you ever had it where they like pull the, your legs away from your body they drop it down and back up and down and back up and that decompresses the discs so the reverse hyper, what it's known for, and you know this, obviously, I'm just telling it for everybody else, is it's known for an active version of decompression. So you actively have to use your spinal extensors. That lifts the bar. You put weight on there that lifts the pendulum arm up with your legs. And then on the way back down, you try to limit your contraction as much as possible, getting that decompression or that flexion distraction and pulling apart the discs, allowing them to distract. So it's just an active version, which we all know active is always going to be better than passive unless you're in an acute flare-up. There's we my, no, there's my knowledge know nugget. 
There's my That's knowledge great. nugget. Beautiful. All right. What were we talking about? Uh, Context-based <laughs> training, right? <laughs> yeah. Let, let, let me let me nerd out on the healthcare side of recreational athletes versus professional athletes real quick. So talking about MMA, talking about our combat athletes, talking about our recreational jujitsu, whoever you may be working with, the, the crazy people that recreationally do wrestling, I don't know why you would do that. I've wrestled my whole life. That's stupid. <laughs> but but um, working with a recreational athlete, the goal of your training obviously is to align with their goals. But if you can't get them to to get the goals out of them, you have like if you're not able to to work the goals away from them without having to ask them for smart goals stuff like that, they're just not giving you like, hey, what w- what's the goal of our treatment here? You should be focused on trying to make them the best human possible, not the best jujitsu player possible, because they're not going to be making money off of that. At the end of the day, they're doctors, lawyers, businessmen, jujitsu of like jujitsu. I feel like attracts a a certain type of person that likes the physical combat aspect, but they also like to be mentally, mentally stimulated. That's what jujitsu does. And that's probably the most common recreational combat sport. But at the end of the day, if they can't live their life as pain-free as possible, they can't do jujitsu. And a lot of these guys, like I tell everybody, like jujitsu is the next CrossFit because there's a community associated with it. Like, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, it's like a supplement family. It's like, it's like your gym family, as dumb as that sounds. Like when you're not around them and you're not able to see them once or twice a week or however often you train, you, you lose that community aspect that we know as humans in general, not just jujitsu, combat, whatever humans need community. And when you don't have that community, that affects you not just mentally, but also physically, because we, we know about the, the pain science aspect where if your mind's not there, that can make your pain flare up worse. Right. And I, I think exactly that. And we, we talked about this as far as like business building. Um, and I can't remember who to attribute this to, but it's a, it's the, you know, the third place or that fourth place that, that you always find yourself, you know, your first place is at home. Second place is at work. Maybe third place is, you know, jujitsu gym, your CrossFit gym, your, your whatever club that you align with. Right. And, and that's what is, I think, more attractive about a lot of, you know, gyms or a lot of uh, jujitsu practitioner places uh, is that it's a community and that it's a, it's a safe place or somewhere where you can be yourself and express that uh, versus somewhere to absolutely just get a workout in or, or do jujitsu. Exactly. So, so to sum up what I just said with the recreational athletes is you got to focus on making them the best human possible and trying to, to get rid of what's going, not get rid of, but assist them, put them down the path to get rid of what's going on. That, that should be goal number one. Moving on to professional athletes, those crazy sociopaths um, that, that I work with mostly, the, the goal for them while it, at the end of the day, the goal is always to make them 100%, you got to know that they are breaking their body down every single day, pushing it to the limit, whether they're in camp, out of camp, on vacation, it doesn't matter. Like on vacation, I have people, one of my guys who's straight, he's awesome dude, crazy dude. He, he runs marathons when he's not in camp. Like that's, that's what he does. And that it's, it's just the mindset of being a professional athlete. And you got to know most of the time, especially in camp, you're probably not going to fix that, that elbow pain, that cauliflower elbow from overextending on that right hand 90 times a day. You need to make them be able to tolerate that as much as possible. The goal for a professional athlete is to make them feel as good as they can to get through the camp or to get 
to that next fight. Because at the end of the day, the difference between a recreational athlete and a professional athlete is the professional part. These guys and girls get paid to go into the cage. So they need to train whether they're hurt or they're not hurt. I can, I can tell them all day, every day until I'm blue in the face that look, if you're at 80%, you should take that week off to get to 90 to 100 and you're going to get better practices. But guess what? They're not going to do it no matter how many times I tell them and how much they trust me. So I need to know that going in and I need to know what my goals are. My goals are to, if I know that about that person, my goals are to make them feel as good as possible to make that 80%. Maybe it's 82% and they can get 2% more in their training and allow them to get 2% more through that eight week camp, which adds up to two times eight. That adds up to 16% more, which is, it's just a pretty big number. Right. And I think the way I, I'm kind of looking at it, or I'm hearing you say it is you can look at it again on another spectrum or another continuum where we have, you know, a professional athletes level of, you know, commitment to their training, commitment to their sport, commitment to getting paid versus, you know, a recreational athlete's commitment to their their practice or to their fourth place or third place. Um, and for a long time in my development, in my training of genuine pot people, I, I've had the mindset, if I can tra- make this athlete or make this person want to train more like an athlete, I'm doing my job, right? If we can get from that ground zero of I'm just a recreational athlete, I don't really care if I go or not or I don't care if I go weightlift or not, if I can get them into a place where they, they want to be training more, they feel the need to go train more and be healthier, that's going to help them in their health and long and lifestyle goals to an extent, right? Once we get to that place where we're obsessed or, or we're semi-pro or we're you know sacrificing some of that health and longevity for performance, that can go off the other end of the continuum where we get to professional sports where sometimes training is not going to be the most longevity health uh, oriented thing, right? So there's that continuum and and finding that sweet spot is going to be different for everyone else. But I am still a fan of getting, you know, whoever your gen pop person or your, your person that's training for health and wellness to think and train a little bit more like an athlete, because a lot of those habits that are high performing are still healthy habits. Yes. And dude, but the one thing, so you've seen the office. I know you have, I'm a huge <laughs> office nerd. And every time I talk to people, cause I, I have students and whoever and family members ask like, what's, what's it like working with professional athletes and that type of shit. And I think of Stanley in like season seven when he's in Florida with that Corvette and he said, and Jim, Jim jumps into the car and he's like, I'm here for a good time. Not a long time. Get in the car. <laughs> And that's literally, that's literally what professional athletics are. They're there for a 10 year window and they need to perform at the highest level possible for 10 years. That that's at maybe, maybe it's 12 years, maybe it's 15 years, maybe it's five years, but they're there for a good time. Not a long time. When I'm working with a recreational athlete they're they, they want to do that for a long time and it mm-hmm. should be as good as possible, but they want to do that for a long time. Yeah, so maybe a- it's, it's a, it's a straight up and down line. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that's 20 years, maybe that's 30 years, maybe that's 40 years. It depends on when they get into that sport and they find their niche of what they love to do. But once you find that love of that sport, which typically, like, like I said, is typically jujitsu as far as recreational combat sports go, they want to do that as much as they can for as long as they can. So they're there for a long time. And mm-hmm. that's, and 
Train well, accordingly. <laughs> exactly. And you got it. Exactly. And it comes that that's where that cardiac output comes in. That's where that muscular endurance comes in. That's where trying to train the attributes that allow them to train for a long time come in as well as on the healthcare side, one like actual implementable tip. I do a lot more rehab unless there's, unless it's post-op, I do a lot more quote unquote rehab and active care with my recreational athletes with all, all two of them. Um, when I, when I'm working with my recreational athletes, my goal is to make them move as, as best as they can as a part of my treatment, my professional athletes, they're, they're being pulled in seven different directions at all point in time. So lucky enough that I get to train them too, as far as the rehab side of things, that's their warm up. I don't do a separate rehab session for them because they don't have time. Their workload is too high. So a lot of the, when they're in my clinic for treatment, a lot of the treatment is the the actual hands-on care it's it's the modalities it's the stuff that makes like i said makes them feel better and go from 80 to 82 not to make the long-term change of 80 to 95 and focus on that biomechanics that's what i save for their warm-ups that's what i save for their training and you need to know that as a healthcare practitioner with these people they're coming to you to feel better they're not coming to you to make the changes that's where you need to have that communication with the strength coach or the skill coach or whoever is in charge of that athlete's workload and try to get the stuff that you know is going to make them better in the long run into their training, but it might not fit into the treatment that they come to you for, as dumb as that sounds, just because they don't have enough time in their week to separate 30 minutes specifically for rehab. You have to mask it as a warm up. You have to mask it as a cool down. You have to mask it at all these different things so that they do it instead of be like, well, why the fuck am I here right now? Like I could be training. Right. It's a timing and a demand issue, right? Because that gen pop person, you can spend an hour for a month working on specific rehab modalities that are going to make something better versus like you said, trying to sneak it in every, every which way. But I think that makes it a lot more digestible for the high performing athlete or for the professional athlete, like thinking about doing this as a warm up, So you're priming your body or a cool down so that you're, you're doing the right things to come down for training. I mean, 10 minutes on a cool down seems like a 10 minutes on a cool down every day is a lot easier to do your rehab than 60 minutes on one specific isolated session. Well, something so, I've been doing a lot recently is, has been, um, I just make a, for, for each person, daily mobility or daily, it's, I call it daily mobility, but it's, it's really just rehab for them. No. I just say mobility because it's trendy. And I, <laughs> and I like, honestly, that's why. And, uh, and I just give them anywhere from three to six exercises for them to do every day, whether they do it when they wake up, whether they do it at lunch, whether they do it when they go to sleep, whether they do it as a warm up. they need to do it every day. And you'll, you'll know if as the qualified movement professional that you are, whether they're doing it or not, because they'll start moving better over time. Within a month, if you don't see a difference, guess what? They're not fucking doing what you ask them to do. Right. And then that's something in my gym I do every time is when they come in, there's a daily mobility that they're expected to be, to have done. And it's more general than your uh, individualized daily mobility drills, but I have, you know, get to the session 10 minutes early one that ensures they're a little bit more ready to go than rolling in two or three minutes late, uh, get to the session 10 minutes early, do this in the warm up area, do these mobility and movement drills that are, are 
designed to uh, address common weaknesses or common um, insufficiencies. And then we'll see that over time, guys that are consistent at doing them, guys that are consistently to the gym are going to start going up and up and start seeing those differences versus, like you said, you'll just be able to see and you're always going to be restarting at square one with the guys that, you know, do it for a week or do it for a day and then drop off. Um, so it, it's interesting though, to see, and for me, maybe where society puts that emphasis, right? You know, I always want to be training hard. I don't want to do the small things to make that hard. Training <laughs> worth it, right. Yeah. So it, it's a catch yeah. 22 right there. Exactly. They just want to be tired. They don't care. They don't care about objective improvements. They care about the feeling of work. Getting tired is not the goal. Getting better is the goal, regardless of circumstance. Right. And then, uh, the other one that I say, and then I've said this before on the podcast, you know, how sore you are the next day is not a valid measurement of how good the workout was. Yes. Like that it cannot, or how much you sweat is not a good measure of the work, how good the workout was. So, uh, unless you're cutting weight, well, that's a whole different conversation. And I also have an opinion on that. Austin, so I was trying to fire you up a little bit. I know, there. I know. You are. Um, so that, that's, that's really what I want to talk about as far as, as recreational versus versus professional you got anything i think uh, tidbits uh, i think uh we covered it all we bounced around a little bit but i think we overall had some good knowledge bombs that we dropped so the real um, question how's jujitsu been going for you talking about recreational athletes uh, I've i've been loving it man i i've and i mean i'm not new I, i've practiced jujitsu maybe like six months now but i Recently switched over to Factory X here in uh, in Inglewood in Denver, Colorado, and that's been really fun to roll with some more like-minded people, right? You know, I, I was going to a commercial gym where it was a recreational gym pop place where, you know, a collegiate wrestling background doesn't really fit in. Um, but going to more of a, an actual MMA high-performing gym has been a good setting shift and a lot better with the roles. And so learn a little bit more jujitsu, but I'm still just looking to get to your back and, and ride. So of course throw legs in, yeah. bro. You know, you know what I don't understand that isn't hit more. And obviously some gyms don't allow you twisters, yeah. bro. That's just, a, that's just a cross body ride. This it is not, literally. it's not hard to get there. No. Yeah, and I don't know. That's, that's the thing though, that I'm always um, like hand tied with, right? Because I, I, I can dominate position. I, I feel great. You know, as a wrestler playing jujitsu, I feel great in the positions. I need to increase my vocabulary of subs, man. I just, 100%. I can't get to them. I don't know how to set them up. I need, I need to chain the two together, right? I, that's my biggest, you know, glaring weakness is like, I'll ride your back for four minutes out of the five minute round, but I, I'm not subbing you. Yeah, but they always <laughs> say position before submission. So at least you get the first part. All right, I'm, I'm doing that well. You just, you just can't do the second part. Well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> can't. Uh, so let's say not yet. We'll, we'll say we'll uh, exactly. That. I, you're right. You're right. I don't like the word can't. Not you're yet. Cha- you're challenged. No, but it's been really fun, honestly. So I'm uh, excited to continue on, on that trail. And I mean, it's uh, always growing on me. Heck yeah, dude. And it's just fun in general. Like you said, it's it's just a good place to be. And what I found personally is, is like the mindset shift, right? From competitive wrestling in college is like, you got to be on, you got to, you know, win the drills or whatever that fucking means. Um, yeah, yeah. Versus when you're just rolling, you know, nobody's grading you. You're like, all right, that guy was better than me that round. Who cares? Like good on him, you know, yeah. or like he knows ankle locks and I don't sweet, man. You can get that tap all day, but um but no, it's just a fun thing to do, right? You just get to change your model of, or your way of looking at it. It makes you it makes you better at the or at the coaching side too. We talked oh, about yeah. that last week, but learning all that stuff just 
elevates everything else in your life because it allows mm-hmm. you to understand the game more. Yeah. My favorite 100%. part of coaching. Yeah. But yeah, dude. So for everybody, thank you for listening. That was building a fighter. Um, if you guys have any questions as far as in camp or uh, working with recreational versus working with professional, please let us know. Our Instagram handles are in the show notes as well as our emails. Um, and tune in next time. If you can give us a rate, that would be fantastic. Give us, give us a Apple podcast. I think it's the only one that does reviews, but that helps us get the word out to everybody that we can, because the more people that listen, the more people we can help. And that's really what this podcast is about. It's just getting good information out there to help as many people as possible work with combat athletes. So till next time, it's Dr. Austin Shane and Alex Friedman. Later. Appreciate y'all.